Before I share our seventh study of our summer series on the life of David, I want to tell you something about the Bible. I love the Bible because there is no book like our scripture. I've been reading and studying Bible for over 40 years. Yet the more I study, the greater amazement I discover in it. According to Hebrews chapter 4, 12 to 13 said, The Word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thought and attitudes of the heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. I believe Bible is alive and active because its author, the Holy Spirit, is alive and lives in each one of us, the follower of Jesus Christ. And the Holy Spirit speaks to us through the Bible. It is the living author of the Bible makes this book live and active. My hero, Karl Barth, was rescued from the heretical modern liberal theology when he began to study the Bible. After exhausting his liberal theology and beginning to examine the scripture, Barth confessed that, Lo and behold, the strange world of the Bible was opened before me. With a surprising God in the strange world of the Bible, Karl Barth, once the devout follower of a liberal theology, became a debunker, deconstructor, and destroy, destroyer of a liberal theology, and the rescuer of a Christian orthodoxy in the 20th century. That's why many people say Karl Barth is the greatest theologian of a modern time. Now, Regarding the, the power and authority of the script, scripture, Bart says something that I really like and I hope you remember. Bart said, I read many books, but the Bible reads me. I read many books, but the Bible reads me. Bible reads me. Bible penetrates my soul and spirit. It reads the thought and attitude of my heart and nothing of my secret is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before God, the author of the Bible. I hope and pray that today's scripture reads us and reads each one of us thoroughly, exposing our hidden thought, blind spots, false self-assumptions to God's saving light and the healing hands. Now, Today's story of David we are about to read is very different from other stories of David that we have enjoyed so far. So far in our study of David king in the wilderness, we have been inspired by David, the man after God's heart. He endured the injustice of irrational envy and murderous persecution with an invincible faith. He resisted the temptation of vengeance he was a patient with an offensive foe like a Nebat. He was teachable to the words of a woman. He repeatedly forgave Saul. So far, David was impressive and outstanding as a man of faith and integrity and courage. However, 
We will see different David today. We will be shocked, dumbfounded at his conniving duplicity, ruthless calculation, and double face. I almost see David in the first Samuel 27 is a man against God's heart, not after God's heart. So with that introduction, let's open our scripture and let's read the first uh, Samuel chapter 27, verse 1 to 12 responsively. So please unmute. I'm going to read odd number verses and I want you to read even number verses. So starting with the first Samuel chapter 27, verse 1. But the David thought to himself, one of these days I'll be destroyed by the hand of Saul. The best thing I can do is to escape to the land of a Philistine. Then Saul will give up searching for me anywhere in Israel, and I will slip out of his hand. So David and the 600 men with him left and went over to Achish, son of a male, king of Gath. David and his men settled in Gath. With Achish, each man has his family with him, and David had two wives, Ainoam of Zezreel and Abigail of Carmel, the widow of Nabal. When Saul was told that David had fled to God, he no longer searched for him. Then David said to Achish, If I have found a favor in your eyes, let a place be assigned to me in one of the country towns that I may live there. Why should your servant live in the royal city with you? So on that day, Achish gave him Ziklag, and it has belonged to the kings of Judah ever since. David lived in Philistine territory year and four months. Now David and his men went up and raided the Jasurite and Gazarite and Amalekite from ancient time to these people had lived in the land extending to Shur and Egypt. Whenever David attacked an area, he did not leave man or woman alive, but took sheep and cattle, donkeys and camels, and clothes. Then he returned to Achish. When Achish asked, where did you go raiding today? David would say, against the Negev of Judah, against the Negev of Jeremiah, against the Negev of Canaanite. He did not leave man or woman alive to be brought to Gath, for he thought they might inform on us and say, this is what David did. And such was his practice as long as he lived in Philistine territory. Achish trusted David and said to himself, he has become so obnoxious to his people, the Israelite, that he will be my servant for life. Now, Today's story of David has no mention of God. There is no reference of God or anything related to God, such as a prophet or a priest. This total absence of God in this story is not just strange, but significant. I believe the narrator speaks to us more about importance of God and our faith to depend on him through his absence, through his absence. What we see here is an unraveling truth about total self-reliance and spiritual compromise. What we observed here is that David is a defecting from God. 
That's why I entitled today's message, Spiritual Defection and Successful Doom. And we'll study today's story in two main parts, and then conclusion. The first part is a spiritual defection. For that, we will look at the first four verses, but the most important verse of today's chapter is verse 1, the first sentence. David thought to himself. David thought to himself. In Hebrew, literally, David talked to his heart. David talked to his heart. This short sentence had a huge ramification, not only for David and his band of brothers, but also others like the Philistines and the people in the regions like Gesherite and Gorizite and Amalekite. One bad step of God's leader led to many tragic, many tragedies of other people later. So parents and house church shepherd and the children, pastors, the youth workers, remember, we, our decision affects other people. Today's story started with an ominous word, but, but. But is a word of a contrast. Today's story contrasts everything David did so far. Since 1 Samuel 22, Kebab Adullam, David relied on God and responded every crisis and every opportunity, every temptation with a trust and obedience to God. Then all of a sudden today, David stopped relying on God. You know, David was known for inquiring God. And God answered him every time David sought God's counsel. God also gave David Ahimelech, the priest who brought the sacred device of Urim and Thunum with a, priest, a priestly you know, breastplate, Unum and Thummim, is a kind of ancient spiritual walkie-talkie to get the God's you know, will, to, to find God's will. But today, David did not inquire of God, nor he asked Ahimelech to seek God's you know, counsel. Instead of turning upward to God, David turned inward to himself. Let me repeat that. Instead of turning upward to God, David today turned inward to himself. When you turn inward instead of upward, guess what happened? David became a fatalistic and felt very pessimistic about his situation. He said, one of these days, I'll be destroyed by the hand of Saul. Sure, Saul was evil. Sure, his repentance was emotional and shallow. Sure, he never changed his mind to hunt and kill David. But Saul was no match to God. God has been protecting David all this time. And David thought he was in Saul's hands eventually. David forgot that he was in the hands of God all this time. You know, if I were with David there at the time, I wanted to tell him loud and clear. David, did you forget God's amazing rescue at the desert of a mound when Saul and his army almost captured you? In the nick of time, God sent the Philistines to attack Israel and Saul has to return to the main battle and they let go of you? Don't you remember that you called the place the Selah Hamak cloth? The rock of a parting? David, don't you remember Abigail telling you that your life is a treasure securely in the treasure pouch of a God 
and the Lord will throw away your enemies like a stone's shot from a sling? David, didn't King Saul, even King Saul said at the last meeting, that you will do great things and you will surely triumph? Why did David lose his focus on God? Was he tired of trusting God? Was it a spiritual fatigue? We need to ask the same question to ourselves. Why do some people stop coming to house church? Stop worshiping God on Sunday? Why do some people, some Jesus-loving you know, members of a forest, become a spiritual MIAs during this pandemic? I don't know for sure the extent of a spiritual fatigue. Here in the David story, the narrator doesn't tell us why David suddenly lost his dependence on God. Rather, the narrator tells us what happened when we turn inward instead of upward. When David thought to himself, he felt fatal about his future. When David saw his situation, especially his future prospect, only with himself, without God, he became a pessimistic. Without God, Saul and his threat looks bigger and deadlier than before. Isn't that what happens to us? Whenever we take off our, take our eyes off from God, our life problems start looming bigger and worse than before. This inward turn of David reminds me of a story of uh, another faithful who fell. Story of Peter in Matthew chapter 14. When Peter saw Jesus walking on the water, Peter asked Jesus to enable him to walk on the water. And Jesus granted his request. And Peter was the first human being who walked on the water on, the bare, on bare feet. And then what happened? Peter saw wind and wave. And he became afraid and began to sink. And he cried out, Lord, say, Jesus, save me. And Jesus reached out his hand and caught him, saying, Peter, why do you doubt? Why do you doubt? Whenever we forget to see God, we fall down, we start sinking. Speaking of an inward turn and sinking down, C.S. Lewis offers us some profound theological spiritual insight in his book, Great Divorce. These days, I've been studying, uh, I've been studying C.S. Lewis and some of his writings during the World War II. Uh, look at me. Two reasons. First of all, we are in the global biological war. I said before, we are in the worst situation. You have to recognize that. Because we don't, we don't see an airplane bombing and the bomb exploding, we, we, and everything is sort of normal, we think we are peacetime. No, we are in the war time. You know, about 23 years ago, I met a, 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 a veterinary, army veterinarian in the uh, uh, wedding reception. And once I found out, you know, he was a veterinarian in army, I jokingly said, what do you do? I mean, we, we don't have any more cavalry. We don't ride on horse anymore. You know, do you, so are you taking care of all the pets of uh, officers? You know, and then with a smile, he said, Pastor Paul, you don't want to know what I do. 
because what I do makes me sleepless some night. And he said, I work with the germs. And he didn't go further. And he said, thermonuclear war is far better than biological warfare. He said, nuclear bomb will kill you instantly. Whereas a biological germ warfare will kill you slowly and excruciating pain. You know, this pandemic is a global biological germ warfare. And I want to remind forest people again, mask is our weapon, not for ourselves, but for others too. So wear a mask all the time. And anybody you feel confident and close, tell them we fight with a mask. Now, we are, I want, reason I study C.S. Lewis, especially during his, his life during the World War II, is because I want to inspire by him. You know, World War II changed C.S. Lewis. He used to be an Oxford Don, a gentle, gentle Christian academician. But World War II made him outspoken, active Christian apologist, and evangelist. Like his friend J.R.R. Tolkien, C.S. Lewis lived through both world wars. C.S. Lewis fought World War I at the Battle of Somme at the second, as a second lieutenant at the age of 19. Can you believe it? Age of 19, he was second lieutenant. And during the war, he lost many good friends and even actually best friends. So when World War II, Began, C.S. Lewis began to share gospel more actively and publicly than before because the people are perishing around him. So he gave some talks to BBC, which later became a famous book, Mere Christianity. He wrote several you know, classics, Problem of Pain, Screw Tapes Letter. By the way, the main character in Screw Tapes Letter, the patient that the junior devil the Wormwood was trying to keep away from God under the advice of his uncle, senior devil, you know, script tapes, was a soldier at the end of the book, he died. And so C.S. Lewis also wrote Abolition of a Man and then Great Divorce. Great Divorce tells us story about an imaginary bus trip from hell to heaven and where the several interesting conversation was recorded. And uh, C.S. Lewis, in this book, describes the difference between heaven and hell. And then now let me share some quotes relevant to our message today. The first one, there is but one good, that is God. Everything else good when it looks to him and bad when it turns from him. No natural feelings are high or low or holy or unholy in themselves. They are all holy when God's hands is on the rain. They all go bad when they set up on their own and make themselves into false God. St. Augustine also said similar thing, that God is a sunum bonum, or ultimate good. God is a good of all good because God makes all things good. By the same token, God's absence makes everything bad. Now let's look at the second quote. There are only two kinds of people in the end. At the final judgment, C.S. Lewis said this, 
Those who say to God, your will be done. These are the people. God said, okay, then join me in my eternal you know, joy, eternal you know, uh, bliss. And to those people who don't say, thy will be done, God will say, in the end, thy will be done. All that are in hell chooses it. Without that self-choice, self there could be no hell. This is why some Christians say hell is a doctrine of human freedom. No soul that seriously and constantly desires a joy will ever miss it. By the way, the word joy is a, a C.S. Lewis, a code, uh, code name for God. For C.S. Lewis, God is nothing but joy. That's why his autobiography entitled Surprised by Joy. Surprised by Joy. Those who uh, 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 knock it, uh, uh, those who seek the joy will find. Those who knock it are open. Now, listen to the next one carefully. The choice of every lost soul can be expressed in the words, better to reign in hell than serve in heaven. Better to reign in hell than serve in heaven. Now, Hell is where you are the only king. Heaven is where you are only a servant, among many servants. According to C.S. Lewis, hell is where the last person you hear is yourself. And the main person you talk to is yourself. Everything is all about you. Me, 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 me. That's a hell. Now, that's a figuratively where David was today. David thought to himself. David talked to his heart. This is a David's a hellish experience. His a pessimistic outlook of the future without God made David panic. And as our famous Dallas pastor Chuck Swindle once said, man is the only animal that when he gets lost, instead of asking some people for direction, he begins to run and run in the wrong direction. Panic usually leads us into wrong direction. In David's case, it was a land of a Philistine. So David said, the best thing I can do is to escape to the land of Philistine. Then Saul will give up searching for me anywhere in Israel and I will slip out of his hand. This inward turn now leads David to downward turn. So verse 2. David and 600 men with him left and went over to Achish, son of Amal, king of Gath. And David and his men settled on Gath with Achish. Each man has his family with him. And David has his two wives, Ainoam of Jezreel, Abigail of Carmel, the widow of Nabal. Now, David went to Achish, the king of Gath. By the way, Gath was the hometown of Goliath. And this was not the first time David went, to the, went there. In 1 Samuel chapter 21, David went there before as an exile. But first time he went there alone as a plan didn't go well. Philistines still remember David's killing of a Goliath and the questions is a motive. So hearing upon that, David felt unsafe there and he pretended to be a crazy man and hurriedly left there. Then, why, did, why is he going back there again? The second time is a different. You have to recognize David went not alone. 
but went with his band of 600 soldiers and their families. What David was doing here was that he was offering service of his private army to the Philistine king. David was politically defecting to enemy nation and was pledging to serve the arch enemy of Israel. I bet the news of David moving to Philistine land was a big. It must be the top international news of the time, especially in Israel and Philistine. You know, Israel, I think, you know, top headline was that David, the warrior of Israel, now became a traitor. Or Philistine, their headline would be, we lost Goliath, but we gained the giant slayer. No more tears for Goliath. This must be, this is a shock to everybody. Now, let's see if David achieved his objectives. We're going to look at the second part, the successful doom. And there's a reason I call the successful doom. George MacDonald, one of the two pastors, I mean, one of the two Christian writers whose writing actually uh, uh, influenced the C.S. Lewis conversion. Today, I talk a lot about C.S. Lewis. He once said, in whatever man does without God, he must either fail miserably or succeed more miserably. Let me repeat that. In whatever man does without God, he must either fail miserably or succeed more miserably. David's case was the latter. He succeeded in Philistine, but miserably. So here we see his successful doom or miserable success. Here we see David successful achieving his goal. First of all, verse 4 earlier, we saw that King Saul stopped pursuing David. So David got safety. David got safety. And then David asked Akish his own place of operation, and then Akish gave him a ziggler. And then let me show you in the map where everything is located. So can you see the map briefly? Now, do you see the Adullam there in the center? That's what the cave of Adullam was. And do you see the En Gedi in the right? That's where the David met the uh, King Saul and the forgave King Saul. And then, you know, Ziklag, uh, scholars are not sure whether there's a two possibility, but it's definitely in the south. And then look at the, all the people, Gazarite, the Gasherite, and the Amalekite. They are the south, you know, coastline whom that David conquered and massacred. Now back. As Ziglach, when he received his own place of operation, David found what? Security and independence. And third, David, according to today's passage, stayed in Ziglach for year and four months. Year and four months. That means David found stability. Stability. Up to now, David was constantly moving. I bet sometimes David in the middle of the meal, he heard the news that uh, souls, uh, spies, souls, uh, armies is around the corner. And they have to say, hey guys, drop everything and then we have to go. And, you know, there was no stability. Finally, David lived in one place for a year and four months. 
I bet as Ziggler, David could sleep without worry for the first time in a long time. Fourth, David and his men attacked the surrounding people and accumulated substantial wealth. By the way, the people that David raided were old enemies of Judah. The Gesherite, Gezerite, and Amalekite. These are the old enemies of Judah. And then David told Achish that he was actually attacking the Judah and the Judah's ally. So Achish was happy. So David lied here. Now, because of David uh, attacked the enemies of Judah, some people say that David engaged in the holy war, especially against the Amalekite, whom God earlier commanded the soul to annihilate and the soul disobey. Let me tell you very clearly. David was not doing holy war here. Because in holy war, you devoted or destroyed everything, including animals, as a sacrifice to God. Today, the passage told us, David took and kept the sheep and cattle and donkeys and camels and clothes. In verse 9, what David was doing here was precisely work of a double agent. He wasn't, what David was doing was not a holy war, but an unholy war, a dirty war. David pretended to be a loyal to Philistine, but he was actually loyal to his tribe of Judah. He is playing a double agent perfectly. And he played well, because finally, according to verse 12, he earned a total trust from Philistine king. Achish trusted David and said to himself, he has become so obnoxious to his people, the Israelites, that he will be my servant for life. Now, we must pause briefly to marvel at this scene in David's life and career. David was no political innocent. He was ruthless and calculating, confident enough to manipulate the Philistine cover for Judaite you know, advantage. We must also marvel at the grip that David has on his entourage. Whether the source of that grip was a charm of intimidation, David's men's love for him or their fear of him, none of the 600 people leaked the information about the David's real raid. This does not surprise us because everybody trusted David. People were readily taken in by him and unwittingly supported his dishonest and effective strategy. So everything seemed to be working for David. He was successfully executing his plans. His men were happy. Philistines were happy. Judaists are happy. Everyone is happy except God. David did not realize what he was doing here would cost him later is a life dream. What is a David's life dream? Do you know David's life dream? Do you know why David conquered Jerusalem? The called the city of Salem, Shalom, city of peace. David's dream was to make Israel a holy nation and make Jerusalem not just a capital city, but the holy city with the holy temple of God. David's ultimate light dream was to build a temple for God. 
So when he shared that dream with the prophet Nathan, Nathan gave God's you know, reply in 1 Chronicles 22.8. But the word of the Lord came to me, You have shed much blood and have fought many wars. You are not to build a house for my name, because you have shed much blood on the earth in my sight. Here God told David twice, you shed much blood. I think God was not just saying that you fought too many wars. That's what kings do. The Solomon, the one that who built the you know, temple, he also fought the war and he shed the blood. So when God said, you shed much blood, God was actually telling David, not just you fought too many wars, you shed unnecessary blood in the process. You shed unnecessary blood. David's success came at the expense of sacrificing innocent lives. And here I think God calls us to examine our definition or standard of a success. Would you call it success simply because your plan is executed efficiently, flawlessly, achieved your intended goal? Is it success? Because you make yourself happy, but God? Because you like the result? Does it make you a success? My favorite uh, uh, American you know, humorist and humorist, uh, uh, essay, essay writer of humor, uh, Omar Bambek, once said this, Don't confuse a fame with a success. Madonna is a fame, but Mother Teresa is a success. Don't confuse a fame with a success. Someone also said this, Let it be never forgotten that glamour is not greatness. Applause is not a fame. Prominence is not eminence. The man of hour is not apt to be the man of ages. A stone may sparkle, but that does not make a diamond. People may have money, that does make them a success. David was successful as a double agent. His plan of a temporary defection seemed to be working well. He got safety, he got security, he got stability, he got substantial wealth, he got even trust of an enemy. Now, that's how this today's story ends. Let's see the conclusion, which is forthcoming doom. That's why I called it successful doom. Look at the chapter 28, verse 1 and 2. In those days, the Philistines gathered their forces to fight against Israel. Achish said to David, You must understand that you and your men will accompany me in the army. That means, David, I helped you all this time. Now it's your turn to pay back your debt to me. And David said, Oh yes, king, you will see for yourself what your servant can do. You know, when David said this, I bet his heart is a trembling. He's a, he tried to kind of, uh, 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 you know, act out his uh, fake, you know, courage and loyalty. I will do my best. Of course, I've been waiting for this. So Akish replied, very well. I will make you my bodyguard for life. Bodyguard for life. Here, David's charade of a double agent came to the worst possible end. 
He cannot be double agent more. In the forthcoming battle, he has to choose one army or another. If we fight for the Akish, he has to forfeit his claim to be Israel's king. He will be traitor to his people forever. And if he attempts to kill Akish, he will probably be killed too. Because as you see later in chapter 25, there were other Philistine generals and warriors who were skeptical and cautious with David and his men. You know, the Hebrew word for my bodyguard literally means guard of my head. Do you think Akish was uh, so gullible that he will just put the only David to guard his life? Most ancient kings were so cautious of a plus of assassination. So, one way or another, David has to face the coming storm and doom of his life. Either way, David's dream to be the king of Israel will be dead forever. This is a conclusion of a David's spiritual defection. Now, we all ask, how could David possibly get out this pickle, this predicament of a double life and now this doom? The narrator chooses to leave us in suspense. That's a good storyteller. He doesn't tell us right away. He leaves us on the cliff hanging for now. Instead, he takes us to see another man who took the matter of his life into his own hand without God, and that's King Saul. So next story we see is that Saul's pathetic attempt to save himself, and it's a tragic end. Now, before you rush to chapter 29 and 32 see David's escape from this impasse, I want us to pause and really let the Holy Spirit speak to us. So let's really recap and reflect ourselves. First and foremost, we must recognize everyone's greatness comes from God and his or faith and trust to God. David's greatness came from God, not from his own above-average human intelligence and connivingness and strength. Once David turned upward posture to his inward focus, he began to live just like another ruthless survivor and lost great opportunity to glorify God. He began to fight for himself, no longer for God. David, the God's truly anointed, used to fight for God. Now he fights for himself. That's the question I have for all of us. How are we fighting in this pandemic? Chuck Swindle once said, We are all faced with a series of great opportunities brilliantly disguised as an impossible situation. Let me repeat that. We are all faced with a series of great opportunities brilliantly disguised as an impossible situation. All the impossible situations a brilliantly disguised opportunity for us to experience, trust God and experience His power. So for me, this pandemic is a great blessing in disguise to refine my faith. You know, nothing has paralyzed and limited my life and ministry like this pandemic. 
Everything around me and in me is closed down, unavailable. There's not, not much I can do. Everything is a sort of a closed in and closed down, except upward, except upward. So I'm focusing on God's word and prayers more than ever. That's why we started a daily breath about 10 weeks ago. And some people ask me whether our daily, uh, uh, our morning uh, devotional called daily breath will end in 40 because that's kind of a you know, good number to do, finish, biblical number. Let me tell you. We are going to do daily breath until this pandemic is over. Because I don't want to just survive. I want us to thrive this pandemic. I want us to glorify God through this pandemic. I want us to be realistic. We just had about five months of this pandemic. I call it first phase. First phase is over. Look at me. We are starting a second phase. We're going another four, five months. This pandemic will not end soon. I hope, I hope this is the second half we are beginning. And I hope somehow if we can see each other before Thanksgiving, that's great. Before Christmas, uh, still great. But realistically, until we have uh, vaccines or antibodies or some kind of serious, you know, deterrence, we might not see each other face to face until next year. I even, you know, my gleam, you know, gleam sense, even Easter. There is a, uh, Andy Stanley, a pastor of a mega church in Atlanta. He shut down his church until next year. I think he's a very realistic. He's not lying like other people. Dear Forest Church, I want us to remind us this. Anything under God's control is a never out of control. This is a very difficult time. And many of us are missing in actions. Well, let me tell you, God is closer to you and me ever than before. For me, this pandemic is a God's blessing to refine my faith. These days, I'm, I'm preparing practically five sermons a week. I'm reading, studying Bible more than ever. I barely have an hour a day to take a breath, except actually Sunday evening. Because some of our people volunteered to help me out daily breath on Monday. So Sunday evening, I chill out. I watch a movie. You know, it's a great, yeah. Sunday, I mean, Sunday evening is a great. It's for me great. Other than that, rest of the week, I'm fighting. On my spiritual booth, on my feet. But you know what happened? When you focus on God's word and pray, God's spirit refined you and refill you, refresh you, rejuvenate you. Man, I'm enjoying Bible more than ever. I'm really, really fell in love with the Bible deeper than ever. Anything under God's control is never out of control. Are you, are you under God's control? 
Did you give your worries and anxiety and fears to God's control? I don't know about you, but me and my household, we are resolved to leave great legacy of faithfulness behind this pandemic. When this pandemic is over, I want to give a more than sigh of relief. I want to give a resounding shout of a victory. Let us give shout of a victory to God. Let's pray.